0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm here in Philippians chapter 1. We will entitle this section, which will cover verses 1 through 14. Paul encourages the Philippians while imprisoned at Rome. A little brief introduction. The author, of course, was Paul. He was under house arrest in Rome when he recorded the book, when he wrote the book. He had appealed to Emperor Nero, and Nero, if you recall, ruled the Roman Empire from AD 54 to AD 68 and Paul was waiting for his appeal to be heard. The date, as most scholars put it, is somewhere around the 60s, first of the 60s, 60 to 62 AD. Paul is addressing Christians in Philippi. Philippi, of course, was a famous city in in northeastern Greece right there on the border of Thrace and Macedonia. It was a Roman colony. Paul had planted his first church on European soil there, probably about AD 50 which we can read about in Acts 16:11 through 40. Now the church of the Philippians was one of the few churches who had sent money to Paul. We read in Philippians 4:15, you yourselves also know Philippians that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. Now what was Paul's occasion for writing? He wanted to thank the Philippians for sending money to Paul to help defray his living expenses while he awaited trial. He wanted to warn the Philippians against false teachers. He wanted to urge the Philippians to greater unity. He wanted to urge them to greater humility. We start now in Philippians 1, verses 1 through 2. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Timothy is included in the greeting here. Why did Paul join Timothy to the greeting? Well, because Timothy was with Paul at the first preaching of the gospel to the Philippians. Timothy was known and respected by the Philippians. In fact, Timothy was with Paul on both of Paul's two trips to Philippi. We can read about that in Acts 16 and Acts 20. Now, Paul was about to send Timothy to them again for the third time. He will later in the letter commend Timothy, Philippians 2.19. Now, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be encouraged by news about you. Now, Timothy may have actually been Paul's an, amanuensis writing this letter, but as John Gill points out, Timothy didn't actually help Paul write the letter. He wasn't responsible for the contents of the letter. Paul writes in the first person singular. Paul Timothy might have been the secretary that wrote it down, but the contents belong all to Paul. Paul says in Philippians 1.3, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, not we thank my God and all my remembrance of you. So He's writing on his own motion and on his own account. Paul shows great humility in this letter by including Timothy because Timothy was Paul's inferior in both spiritual and chronological age, as John Gill points out. Timothy apparently was with Paul in Rome at the time of the writing of the letters. as Adam Clark points out. Now notice in verse 1 that Paul addresses the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Notice that the saints were addressed before the leaders. The overseers were just brethren. They were just saints too. Nowhere in the New Testament are leaders addressed first. Nowhere in the New Testament are leaders addressed solely alone. Nowhere in the New Testament is only one singular leader addressed. Now that's interesting, folks. Churches today should have plural leadership. I can't emphasize that enough. It's amazing to me that a lot of big churches are actually doing that now. Not just house churches, but big churches, plural leaders. That's the way it ought to be. That's the way it was in the New Testament. We got. We think we can do things better than the New Testament? I don't think so. Now Paul also in addition to the saints that he addresses he addresses the overseers now then I V notes as traditionally bishops because that's the way the King James translates it but that's bishops please let's let's do overseers what does an overseer do he superintends he watches over the flock in Acts chapter 20 three terms are equated overseers elders and pastors Acts 20:17 here's where elders are mentioned. From Miletus, he, Paul, sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Miletus was a port Port city down there on the coast of Asia Minor, and Paul called for the elders of the church. Presbyteroi. Presbyteroi. Acts 20, verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Episcopoi. To shepherd. Poimane. I forgot the exact Greek phrase of shepherd, but it's from the Greek word that means to pastor. So the overseers are pastoring the church of God. So there it's very clear that the leaders of the New Testament church were variously called elders, overseers, or pastors. There are three different names for the same leader. Each name emphasizes a different aspect of leadership. An overseer emphasizes administration. An elder emphasizes age and wisdom. A pastor emphasizes ability and desire to feed and nourish. John Gill backs me up on this. He says the bishops were the pastors, elders, and overseers of the church, for a bishop and an elder is one and the same. See Acts 20.17, where the elders of the church at Ephesus are called overseers or bishops, for the same word is used there as here. And the Syriac version here renders the word, which I can't read because I don't know Syriac, elders, and they design no other than common and ordinary pastors who have the name of elders from their age, gravity, and seniority, and that of bishops and overseers from the nature of their office, which is to feed, watch, inspect, and take the oversight of the flock, minister sound doctrine to them, and preserve them from error and heresies. Notice that the elders were plural. This is typical. Nowhere in the New Testament is a single pastor addressed. Now here's some implications and possibilities concerning these plural elders. It could be that each church had plural pastors. I believe that's what it was. It could be that more than one church in Philippi was addressed since each church had only one pastor. This is unlikely as John Gill says. Let me quote him. He says there were and so may be where there is necessity for it more pastors or bishops than one in a church. Unless it can be thought that there were more churches than one in each of these cities or that the pastors of adjacent churches are here included. Neither of which seems to be a neither of which seem to be a clear case. That's bad grammar, John Gill. It should be neither of which seems to be a clear case, but the contrary. In other words, it's unlikely that each church had one pastor, and I would say yes or no. Don't have only one pastor in the church unless you like tyranny, dictatorship, guruism, disaster, sexual immorality. You name it. It's all yours. Have one pastor. Somebody lording it over the flock. I just heard a story of a really nice guy. He was a youth pastor in a church, and he was asked to do something in the church that had nothing to do with youth ministry. And he said, well, let me pray about it. And the hotshot pastor fresh out of seminary says, I don't want you to pray about it. You're going to do it. That's so typical. Prima donna pastors that don't know the first thing about leadership, not the first thing. Here's what John Gill says about these pastors who were all equal in rank. There's absolutely no indication anywhere that one pastor was a senior pastor and one pastor is a junior pastor. Here's what Gill says, quote, These pastors or bishops were all upon an equal foot. One had not any authority or power over another or more authority than another. They were not metropolitan or diocesan bishops, but pastors of a particular church and were neither lords over one another nor of God's heritage. God bless you, John Gill. We go down to verses three, four, five, and six of Philippians one. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Paul says, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, Paul mentions joy, and I don't have the statistics in front of me. It might be in another. Chapter in my notes, but I think it's 13 times Paul mentions rejoice and four times he mentions joy in, a, in the short span of four chapters. And he's in jail while he's writing it. And we're depressed because pagans are controlling the corporations and the politics of this nation and calling us names and saying we're homophobes, xenophobes, racist, and all. Or if you're black, they call you an Uncle Tom or coon. And they, they come up with all this stuff, and we think, oh, we got it bad. Well, Paul was in jail, and he's still rejoicing. Now, this joy that Paul expresses shows that his relationship with the Philippian church was a particularly happy one. I hate to be cynical here, but I wonder if Paul offered prayer for the Corinthian church with joy, because the Corinthian church was nothing but one big hot mess. I don't know. I think he was more like worry when he wrote the Corinthians. But would that all churches just give the leaders of the church and the, or the founders of the church or the participants in the church joy instead of grief. Wouldn't that be nice? So the way it ought to be. Now, Paul mentions this word participation. He says, I thank God for you all in view of your participation in the gospel. That participation is the English translation of the Greek word koinonia. Now, other translations of koinonia here and KGV has fellowship I, in view of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day till now, the NIV has your partnership in the gospel from first day until now. John Gill says, in the view of your communication in the gospel from the first day till now, the word means the same. It's one of my favorite Greek words. It's the same word that we use for holy Communion. We're together with each other, participating with each other and with Jesus in the Lord's Supper. But we also participate in the gospel. Well, how did they participate in the gospel from the first day until now? Well, the first day was when Paul established the church in AD 50. How did they participate? Well, Paul is probably, according to John Gill, referring to the financial contribution that the Philippians gave to Paul, and that means they were participating in Paul's ministry. I think that's probably what it is. Adam Clark says the participation is the Philippians' readiness to persevere in the gospel. Jameson Fawcett Brown says it refers to their spiritual participation in the gospel. Adam Clark says it's their unity and affection for one another. Well, all of that's true, but I think Paul's talking about the money that he got, and he thinks he wants to thank you. This is a thank you letter. And by the way, how many times have you given money to organizations and you don't get any thanks for it? I have. It happens all the time, especially when it's computerized. But just in the last month, I got two handwritten notes last three weeks, two handwritten notes from two missionaries that I had contributed to and they were thanking me. And you say, well, that's so formal, that's so unnecessary. And actually, no, it it, it meant that they were appreciative and I appreciate that. I, I appreciate their appreciation. And Paul did too, and he was letting the Philippians know that he really appreciated what they had done for him. Now, Paul says that he, Jesus, had begun a good work in the Philippians and he would perfect it. He. Had, Jesus had begun a good work. What's the good work? Well, here's some options. It could be the establishment of a church in their midst. So Jesus had done a good work by establishing a church in the in Philippi. But that good work will be perfected until till the day of Jesus Christ. Well, now you got a problem. The church of the Philippians didn't last until the end of time. If the day of Jesus Christ refers to the end of the world, well, the answer to that, in my opinion, is if you take the day of Jesus Christ as referring to the 8070 coming of Jesus as Jesus talked about in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. If that's the case, then Paul is saying Jesus began a good work in the Philippian church, and that church is going to be perfected all the way up until the time that the Philippians' enemies are judged in 8070. Well, here's another option besides the establishment of a church. He who began a good work in you will perfect it. Now, how do we as individualistic Americans always take that verse? He who began a good work in you, singular, but it's plural here, but we take it as singular, and God began a good work in us by getting us saved, and then He will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I guess that would be until the day that we die and see Jesus, not until the end of the world. Because if you take it to mean the end of the world, that God's going to be working grace in our hearts until the end of the world, that's not going to happen because we're going to die before then. But if you say the day of Christ Jesus is when we see Jesus when we die, of course the grace will be perfected us until then. But the problem with that individualistic interpretation is it's he who began a good work in you it's it's plural i mean you could say jesus began a good work in brother a and a good work in brother b and a good work in brother c and that makes it plural but i don't think that's what paul's doing here i think he's saying he began a good work in you philippians he's going to perfect that church he's going to bring that church to maturity until not until the end of the world but until such time as he comes and judges the jewish and roman enemies of the church we go down to Philippians 1, verses 7 and 8. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how along long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way, what way? Well, that God will continue a good work in them. He just said in the previous verse, God will be a, continue a good work in you and I know that's going to happen he's going to perfect you Philippians and it's only right for me to feel that way about you to feel that God's perfection is going to continue to work in my in in your in your midst now there's another use of the word cornonea in this verse he repeats cornonea in verse 7 he says since you all are partakers of grace with me that word partakers is cornonea." Since you share grace with me, in other words, you got saved and I got saved by grace, not based on works, lest any man should boast. We both are saved. That's one option of how the Philippians are partakers of grace with Paul, but I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. It's true, but I don't think that's what he was talking about. I think he's talking about sharing of money. You all are sharers of grace with me because you gave me money in his imprisonment. And the defense and confirmation of the gospel, when I didn't have any money to support myself in prison, you took care of me by sending me money. Now, how did the Philippians do that? Well, they sent Epaphroditus to minister to Paul, Philippians 2.25, but I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Actually, this is Paul sending Epaphroditus back to Philippi from Rome, but I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. So Paul sent him back, but in doing so, he mentions sort of in passing, he mentions that Epaphroditus is also your messenger and minister to my need. So Epaphroditus had sent money to Paul while he was in prison in Rome. We read also in Philippians four verses fourteen through sixteen. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. That's talking about sharing, Cornelia, money. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone, for even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Thessalonica was the next stop down the coast, and as Paul left Philippi, he didn't take any money from the Philippians while he was there, but when he got to Thessalonica, the Philippians sent messengers after him and gave him money. Philippians 4.18, but I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering and acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. It's talking about money that Aphroditus had carried to Paul. So I think that when he talks about, Paul talks about partakers of grace with me, he's talking about the sharing of money. You all are partakers of grace with me. You all shared gifts with me, money. Now, of course, you could take it. This way that you're protectors of grace because I'm saved like you're saved. You can do that. But I don't think that fits the context too well because this is a thank you note for financial support. We go to Philippians 1 verses 9 through 11. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, Paul says, your love may abound more and more, and I pause here to point out that love is not mere affections. It might involve feelings and emotions, of course. We don't want to deny that, but mostly love is actions, doing stuff, something, and what did the Philippians done? Had they just said, oh, Paul, we care so much for you. We have all these warm and fuzzy feelings whenever we think about you. We cry over you. And no, they did something. They sent him money. Love is actions. I just love talking to these single college students that I used to teach, especially the girls, you know, oh, I love him. I love my boyfriend. I said, really? I said, why are, you getting, why are you getting married? Oh, because my husband will support me and he'll love me and take care of me. I said, I thought married love was supposed to be what you did for the other person. What are you going to do for him? And I've asked people that question, young, single people that question. I have yet, I have yet, when I say, why are you getting married? I have yet. To hear someone say, it's because I want to show love to somebody. I want to do something good for my husband. It's always me, me, me. And me, me, me is the opposite of love. But anyway, that's the way human beings are. I guess I shouldn't bemoan the fact too much. But the point is, is that Paul is saying your love, i.e. you're giving me money when I needed it. The result of that is going to be more and more knowledge and discernment, spiritual knowledge and discernment. So spiritual, they they sowed physical things, natural things with Paul, and they're going to reap spiritual things. Now, I had somebody just recently point out something about this idea of love is just mere actions. It is not just mere feeling, but it also includes actions. I pointed out that in 1 Corinthians 13, it says, if I give my body to be burnt, but I do not have love. Well, that's an action of giving your body for, to die for somebody. That's an action. That should show love, but Paul says it's possible to do that without having love. And so this person jimmied the definition a little bit and said that love is putting the object of your love at the highest priority, the supreme position of desire. So in other words, if you love Jesus, that means you want to feel good about him and you want to do good things for him. But the main thing is is that he's number one in your affections. Okay, well, that's a little deep for me a little technical i just like to think love means doing something for somebody you love now the philippians are going to bound in real knowledge knowledge is could be two things It could be knowledge of things in general in other words it's one thing to want to do the things that are excellent it's quite another thing to know what things are excellent to do so you have knowledge this is what i should do i should help i should support this missionary as opposed to that missionary i should go to this church as opposed to that church you know that kind of thing knowledge Paul in verse 10 it says he wants the Philippians to approve the things that are excellent. Well, how do you know something is excellent? You've got to know something is excellent before you will do it. So how do you know to approve the things that are excellent? What's excellent? Who knows? Well, that's knowledge you need to know. That's not easy. Well, but that knowledge could be spiritual knowledge, not just natural knowledge, that the Philippians would abound more and more in real spiritual knowledge. Knowledge of God, this is what Ellicott, the commentator, says, since it is clearly a personal knowledge of God in Christ, it may be gained under his inspiration by one of many processes, by thought, by practice, by love, by devotion, or perhaps more properly, by some or all of these combined. So I don't know what Paul meant here. Did he mean real knowledge in the sense of knowing what to do, or is he talking about real knowledge of God? I report, you decide. He says all discernment, so that sounds like it option a that is referring to knowledge of what to do rather than knowledge of god so we'll go with that one he says that if you have more knowledge and discernment you will approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and the niv has pure john gill agrees with the niv translation you'll be pure sincere means you're single-minded you sincerely you don't have any ulterior motives but your motives match your mouth you love Jesus, and there's no hemming and hawing about it. You don't love him because it gives you commercial or political power, as all the ministers in Edward VI's reign in England when he was trying to do Protestant reform, the boy king and all of his, a lot of his ministers. Oh, yes, we're evangelical. We love Jesus. And all they cared about was what big palace they could get, what castle they could get, what political power they could get. That's not loving Jesus sincerely and purely. In order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Now, when is the day of Christ? Well, we've got the same problem whenever we see the day of Christ is it referring to when he comes back physically at the end of the, end of the world, or he's talking about 8070 when he comes in judgment on Jerusalem. If he's talking to the Philippian church, I think he's referring to 8070 because the Philippian church was not around. It's not, I don't think Paul was planning it to be around until Jesus came back physically, which who knows how far in the future that would be. And then Paul says in verse 11, you Philippians have been filled with the fruit of righteousness. Well, fruit. What does that mean? Here are some options. It could be good works, as John Gill suggests. He, he reads, he cites 2 Corinthians nine ten. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your Righteousness. Now the harvester of your righteousness is translated the fruit of your righteousness in the King James. And so that's the idea is we have good works that the Philippians having given Paul Money would abound in good works, be filled with the good fruit of righteousness be, righteousness. be filled with good works which come from righteousness. But fruit could also mean spiritual fruit, as in Galatians 5:22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Of course, there's not any law. The Spirit, as opposed to the law, will work all those good things in you, and so then Paul is saying you will abound with the fruit of righteousness with spiritual fruit love joy peace gentleness and so forth i prefer that being filled with spiritual fruit as opposed to being filled with good works whichever it is they come through jesus christ and they go to the glory and praise of god so whatever good works we do or whatever fruit of spiritual fruit we exhibit love joy peace gentleness self-sacrifice endurance and all that Whatever we do or whatever we manifest in our spiritual lives, it's not for our glory. It's for the glory and praise of God. Glory means giving praise for the excellent characteristics of one. And so God gets public praise for glory because when people see us, they say, man, you're different. I just talked to a guy who was in a rock band and he was a typical rock guy. You know, he had roadies and groupie girls asking him to his hotel rooms, and he was doing drugs, smoking pot. And when he got saved, all the members of the band and everybody knew him says, Man, you are different. What has happened to you? <laughs> and he gave glory to God because of it. He says, I didn't change myself. Jesus changed me. We go to verse, well, let's before we go on, let's look at this phrase, the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. If you want to get fruit, whether it's good works or a spiritual fruit, if you want to do that it is only going to come through jesus christ not through your own flesh no fruit is ever grown unless it is through the vine jesus christ john fifteen one through two i am the true vine jesus said and my father is the vine dresser every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away and every branch that bears fruit he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit jesus is making fruit grow in his christians this is his job this is his duty this is his pleasure he makes fruit grow in us and we just need to let that fruit grow by letting the life that is in the vine the sap flow through us and let jesus live in us not the law not the works of the law not the works of our own effort but jesus flowing through us as we get to know him more and more more fruit grows we go to philippians 1:12 through fourteen and we will finish up this audio Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. This turning out, my circumstances have turned out, and how many times have we experience that in our Christian lives. Romans eight twenty eight. 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called to his purpose. How many times have you had some really bad stuff happen, and all of a sudden you think, wow, boy, I'm glad that happened, because otherwise something worse would have happened, and now something good has come of it. For example, when you ask some woman to marry you, and she would be a disaster, an absolute disaster for you to marry her, and it turns out, oh, thank God, as garth brooks once put it in a country song thank god for unanswered prayers that prayer was not unanswered and we thought it was bad but actually it was good it turned out good well paul's circumstances were bad because he was in jail but being in jail actually helped the greater progress of the gospel the cause of christ has become well known through the whole praetorian guard what's the praetorian guard that's the bodyguard of the emperor there's an interesting quote here from Jameson Fawcett and Brown about the Praetorian Guard. Let me read this quote. The barrack of the Praetorian Guards attached to the Palace of Nero on the Palatine Hill at Rome. Not the general Praetorian camp outside the city, for this was not connected with Caesar's household. So what Jameson Fawcett and Brown is saying is there was two places where Praetorian Guards were. and This was the close bodyguard of Nero that were, who was watching over Paul. So that means that Paul was in the emperor's household. The emperor was praetor or commander-in-chief. Naturally, then the barrack of his bodyguard was called the Praetorium. Paul seems now not to have been at large in his own hired house, though chained to a soldier, as in Acts 28:16, Acts 28:20, 20, Acts 28:30, Acts 28:31. But Paul seems to rather be in strict custody in the Praetorium. A change which probably took place on Tigellinus becoming Praetorian prefect. Well, that's interesting. In other words, Paul's confinement is now worse than it was when he first got to Rome. But did Paul let that get him down? He's rejoicing, he doesn't care, and he's witnessing to the whole praetorian guard. Now you can imagine, these guys are tough, hardened soldiers looking after him, and he's telling them about Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Now what's that gonna do? That's gonna give everybody courage to speak the gospel, because if Paul is imprisoned and can speak the gospel with courage, well that means those who are not in prison, a fortiori, ought to have courage to speak the gospel without fear. Verse 14 says, most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. People are looking at Paul as an example. He's in a bad situation. He's speaking the gospel. When people look at that, then they'll have courage to speak the gospel. And folks, I want to tell you, it is hard. It, it sometimes, you know, it's just fearful to, to, to speak the gospel. I remember being in communist China and you thought, well, I'm just one mistake away from getting either arrested and put in jail or sent back to America on 48 hours notice with all my belongings left behind in the motherland. And so, yeah, I was a little bit nervous sometimes to speak the gospel. But even worse, it's in America when people just laugh at you. Oh, what? So I, just last week, a friend of mine was trying to witness to a, a spectrum repair guy who was trying to repair the Internet connection in her beach house. And so she starts witnessing to him, and she, he looks at her and says, I don't need any religion today. <laughs> so, you know, there's always going to be people who push back against the gospel, especially in pagan, godless America. But we've got to have courage to speak the word of God without fear in all times, and all places. I admire this sister who witnessed to a repairman. That's something you don't normally see, actually. I know I don't do that, so I, I was impressed by that. But anyway, the... Christians who watched Paul were impressed by Paul, witnessing in his adverse circumstances. Now Paul says that the Gospel has now become known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else who's referring who is he referring to when he says everyone else besides the praetorian guard? Well, here's some options. It could be the court where Paul's case was tried. Paul's defence of course, would involve preaching the gospel. He would say, This is why I'm here. I'm preaching the gospel' And then, of course, these court people, they're judges, they're big shots. They would then spread the news through high places. Look at this guy. He's talking about somebody who rose from the dead. Forgive us for our sins. Now, as he gave his d- defense before the gospel, I'm sure he also probably witnessed to the lawyers and judges, maybe privately outside of the court proceedings. Besides the Praetorian Guard, he could have witnessed to people in Nero's palace. We know there were Christians in Caesar's household, Philippians 4.22. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So he's witnesses to some big shots, witnessing at court, amongst Nero's courtiers. Courtiers That would include those who came from outside Rome, even, who were visiting Nero's court. It could be other places in Rome, other places in the empire that, that the word had gotten out as people spread the word by mouth. It could be Praetorian soldiers who were who heard the word from the Praetorian Guard and then spread the word elsewhere through the Praetorian Guard. Lots of ways the gospel could have been known, however, we don't know how that was how what actually happened, but we know that the word was spreading. The wind was blowing where the wind blows, and nobody knows where it goes. Ladies and gentlemen, with that happy note, we are now finished with Philippians 1 verses 1 through 14. I hope you stay tuned for our next audio, which will cover verses 15 through 30 of Philippians chapter 1. Paul's Chains, Advance the Gospel. See you next time.